Hey Icon, Josh here. So we are on a, a little bit of a weird uh, shift in sermon series. We just ended our rest series last week and then uh, next week we're going to be picking back up in our Roman series, picking up in Romans chapter 6. Uh, but for today we're doing just a little one-off sermon and I want, I want to look at the transfiguration and uh, kind of get into it because I really think there's so much here for us as Christians to move forward and to grow in Christ. And uh, I, I want to jump into it, but first let me, let me go ahead and pray for us. Father, I, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your son who we see in your word and all that we see of him compels us forward, God. Draws us forward. Your son is seen in scripture is like a magnetic force that pulls us toward him. And I pray today, God, that, that by your spirit, you would help me to, to show my friends here at Icon the beauty of Jesus. Father, I, I pray that as we look at Mark 9, that your spirit would help us to see things maybe that we've never seen before, uh, not just for the sake of seeing new things, but for the sake of following Jesus better, for enduring in the Christian life. And so, Father, I, I entrust this time to you, God. I, I ask, God, that your spirit would help me, your spirit would help my friends here at Icon, and we would walk away from this serving sermon having, having seen more of who Jesus is and been all the more compelled and pulled in to follow him and to love him. So Father, would you unite your power with my weak words, and as a consequence, bear fruit in our lives together here at Icon. We love you, and we entrust this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, like I said, I, I want to look at the transfiguration today in this little one-off sermon series. And, and just to kind of start, I think it's, it's good for us to acknowledge that the transfiguration is a really weird spot in the gospel. Like we don't really know where to place it. It's, you know, it's not really a miracle. It's not Jesus healing someone. It's not him really teaching something. It, it just almost seems like this blip in the story that feels really random. That Jesus's clothes get all white and then there's like some old dead guys that show up and then a cloud speaks. It's, it's really strange if we don't know what's going on. But if we know what's going on and we get a little bit more context, I think it'll help us feel a little bit more of what's going on here. And so uh, specifically, we're, we're looking at the transfiguration that shows up in Mark 9. And one of the things to, to know about the Gospel of Mark, one of the central themes of the Gospel of Mark is the identity of Jesus. Who, who is Jesus? What is he here for? That, that's, a, that's a question that Mark is continually bringing up in his gospel. And uh, you see this all throughout really the first even uh, eight chapters of Mark. What's followed up until this chapter is there's these questions of who is this man who, who teaches with such authority? Who is this man who has the audacity to forgive sin? Who, who is this man who's able to give sight to the blind, who's, who's teaching with such authority? We don't know where to place this guy. And so this question in Mark's gospel is building and building and building all the way up until Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 30, where Jesus turns to the disciples and he says, who, who do the crowd say that I am? And so, some of the disciples are like, you know, some say John the Baptist, some say that you're the new Elijah, um, but no one really knows. And then he, he, Jesus zeroes in on the disciples and says, who do you say that I am? 
Who do you think that I am? This, this, this same question of Mark's gospel. Who is Jesus to you? Who do you think he is? How do you see him? And, and, and Peter, on behalf of the disciples, kind of rises to the occasion and says, Jesus, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the one chosen by God to deliver God's people. And at that moment, Jesus, Jesus affirms him, and it seems like the question of Mark's gospel has been answered there in chapter 8. But it hasn't. Because although Jesus, although Peter has the, the right idea of who Jesus is, that he's the Christ, within that definition that him and the disciples have, there's some really unhelpful distractions and misunderstandings that prevent them from really seeing who Jesus is, from really answering the question of Mark's gospel. And we see that because right after Peter begins to uh, say that Jesus is the Christ and Jesus affirms him in that proclamation, Jesus then turns in and kind of doubles down and says, you know what, Peter, disciples, you're right. I am the Christ. And as the Christ, I am going to suffer and die at the hands of the chief, uh, of the chief priests and the Pharisees. And then three days, three days later, rise again. And not only that, not only am I going to die as the Christ, but if you want to follow me forward, you yourself are going to have to pick up your own cross. And with that in mind, after this great kind of climax of, the, of Peter saying, hey, you're the Christ, you're the anointed one, and the, the, Jesus kind of throws in some confusion on them of like, yeah, I am the Christ, but not the Christ that you expect. And I'm calling you to something that you wouldn't expect. And the disciples there in Mark chapter 8 had to be left reeling. Disillusioned. What is going on? You know, they, they have left everything they had. They've left families. They left jobs. They left safety in order to follow this man, Jesus. And now Jesus is kind of flipping upside down everything they thought that he was. They thought they had an understanding of who he was. And Jesus flips it on its head and says, I am the Christ, but I am going to suffer and die as the Christ. And if you want to follow me as your Christ, as your Savior, you yourself are going to have to pick up your cross and follow me. The disciples had to be left reeling, disillusioned. Did they, they had to be asking the question, did we get this whole thing wrong? Did we pick the wrong guy. Is this Jesus just another, just another man who's claiming to be the Christ but isn't really? Have we made a mistake? The disciples are asking that question. What's, what's going on? How am I supposed to move forward with this news of crucifixion and my own call to the cross-bearing life? And it's in that context that the transfiguration has, happens. Right after Jesus blows up their misconceptions on who he is and the disciples are left reeling as Jesus is calling them into something that they were not expecting, that's when the transfiguration happens. And the transfiguration, I'm gonna, this is kind of my thesis for the sermon, okay? The transfiguration happens in order for Jesus to verify for the disciples that he's the right person to follow, 
that they haven't gotten it wrong. He is the right person to follow and to give them a sense of his value that not only is he the right person to follow, but he's actually worth following forward. Verification and valuation. And that, that, that's what the transfiguration is about. But before we jump into it and really get into the details of Jesus doing that, I just want to ask you the question, have you ever felt what the disciples feel here? Have you, have you felt a sense of, in the Christian life, this isn't what I expected? This isn't what I feel like I signed up for, man. Jesus, as, you, you know, as you're following Jesus, there comes a time in all of our Christian lives where he says to us, if you want to continue to follow me, you are going to have to lay this aside, whatever that is. As we're following Jesus on the cross-bearing way, bearing our own cross, following him forward, there always comes a moment where Jesus turns to us and says, if you want to continue forward on this path, you are going to have to let this go. You're going to have to let this die. And I, and I think many times we can be taken aback by that. That, that this, this thing that Jesus is calling me to let go of, to put aside, to put to death, it feels so critical to who I am. I don't know anything else. I've never not done this. I've never not had this. I've never not thought of my way, thought of myself in this way. How am I supposed to move forward? How am I supposed to let this go? And I want to say to you, friends, if you're in that place, or if you've ever been in that place, the transfiguration is for you, friends. It's not a blip in the Gospels. It's not a, a random distraction. It is there in order that we, as Christians, might have the strength to follow Jesus forward. In order that Jesus might, just like the disciples and for us, verify that he's the right person to follow and that he's worth following forward no matter what he's calling us to give up he's worth it and i hope you'll see that today as we look at this text mark 9 mark 9 first looking at jesus verifying that he's the right person to follow let's let's read the text starting in chapter 2 and after 6 days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And, and Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah." For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Okay, so first up, in this text, how does Jesus verify for the disciples that he's the right person to follow? Well, first, I mean, I think kind of one of the obvious points is whenever, you know, whenever a cloud speaks and it's, not, it's noted that it's God the Father speaking, you should probably listen to it. And what does he say? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So that's a little piece of verification. But that's an obvious one, right? God the Father is just saying, hey, this is my boy. You need to listen to him. You need to listen to him to move forward. That's a little bit of verification. But there's, there's more going on in this text that, that Jesus is doing, that Jesus is verifying for, him, for them. 
the, the, the details of what happens at the transfiguration is about verifying who he is by fulfillment. By fulfillment. The, the details of this event are meant to, to show that Jesus has come to fulfill or complete or to, to better the ministry of some very important figures in the Old Testament. And we kind, of, we kind of begin to get an idea of that as we look at the text, right? That who, who shows up? Elijah with Moses. These are kind of the two critical men of the Old Testament apart from David. You know, Moses kind of represents the law and then Elijah is uh, really like the chief prophet of the Old Testament. And those are kind of the pillars of the law and the prophets of the Old Testament. So we see that these two men showing up, it's not, it's not a random selection of Old Testament figures, but these specific men are here in order to show something. And they're here to show that Jesus is the, the fulfillment of what they had done before. And I would love to look at both of them, but really we only have time to look at one. That Jesus verifies that he's the right person to follow by showing that he's the fulfillment of Moses. Of Moses. So what, what, who is Moses? As you probably know, it, Moses is one of the, like I said, one of the important figures in the Old Testament uh, throughout. Uh, he probably wrote Genesis, Deuteronomy, Exodus, all those things. Uh, he, he probably wrote those, and he's a very key figure in the life of Israel because what's he, what's he famous for? The Exodus, right? That he, he's the man who God called to lead his, God's people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land, and things went really wrong for a while, and then and Moses ended up kind of screwing up the whole thing. And, uh, but that, that's what he's famous for, right? Is, is Exodus, fr- freeing God's people. And, and, I, and I want to think with, with me, I want you to think with me, where is the Exodus first announced? It's in the burning bush scene, right? If you remember that, let, let, me, let me just read that. And again, all this is connecting to Mark 9, as you'll see. The burning bush scene in Exodus, as God, as God calls Moses to this great task. Exodus 3, verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out into a land of good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, the Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And so this, this is the moment where the, the, the really critical piece of, uh, of the life of Israel begins, right? That Moses is walking along, he's just kind of tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, 
Uh, he's really cast out from society. He was born in Egypt, raised in Egypt, but he's an Israelite to the core. And he's kind of been cast out. And then he's, he's walking through the wilderness and he finds that there's this bush that's on fire, but not being consumed. And, you know, not surprisingly, he's taken back by it. What's going on here? I'm, I'm going to go check this thing out. And so he goes over to it. And then as he goes over to it, the, uh, the, the God speaks through the bush. He speaks through this burning bush and says, hey, Moses, you're my man who I want to lead my people out of slavery with. Now, that's Moses's role. That's when his ministry began to, to lead the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. But what in the world does that have to do with what we're looking at in Mark 9? Where's the connection there? Well, actually, there's, there's some really striking connections. You see, it says that, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And in Mark 9, in Mark's uh, piece of the transfiguration, he doesn't give us the topic of conversation, but Luke, in the Gospel of Luke, actually does when he records this event. And he says that Moses and Elijah were with Jesus, and they were discussing his departure that he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That's weird. How do you accomplish a departure? <laughs> well, the, the Greek word behind that word departure, what it actually means is exodus. And so these, these men show up with Jesus and Jesus is discussing with them this exodus that he's about to accomplish. And so we're getting, we're getting connections here to back to the burning bush scene. But even more so, you know, when you look at the burning bush scene, what's, what's so striking about it? Again, it's that there's a bush that's on fire, but it's not being consumed. That the, the nature of the fire is within the frail nature of the bush, but not overtaking it. Does that sound like anything? Jesus, being fully human, as we know, and yet fully divine, that, 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 that balance, that truth of who he is, fully God, fully man, is put on display here. He's transfigured. It's like the light of his divinity comes, uh, comes out on full display. And Jesus doesn't have a out-of-body experience. It's not like his divinity comes out of him and then just, you know, Jesus is just laying there. No, his divinity is broadcasted through the frail nature of his humanity, and yet it's not consuming his body. What does that mean? What am I trying to say? Jesus is the true and better burning bush through which God is announcing a new exodus, not just an exodus from the tyranny of some nation, but an exodus from sin and death itself. Jesus is verifying for the disciples here. Hey, your greatest hero in your people's history, Moses, I'm the fulfillment of what he's done. The exodus that he accomplished is nothing compared to what I'm about to do. That Jesus is the true and better Moses and burning bush who will accomplish a new and better exodus. Not just from the tyranny of a nation, but from sin and death itself. And so we see in the transfiguration here, Jesus is, Jesus is verifying for these disciples that, hey man, your greatest hero, I'm the fulfillment of that. All that he did I'm going to do even more. 
He's verifying that he's the right person to follow. So that they can, they can swallow the pill of Jesus' soon-to-be crucifixion and their call to the cross-bearing way. Jesus says, hey, I'm the right person to follow because every, every person in the Old Testament that you love and adore, the leaders that you treasure, I'm better than that. I'm the fulfillment of that. Jesus verifies for them. And just, just like the disciples saw here, like I said in the beginning, we need that verification as well. Man, we need to know that Jesus is the right person to follow. There's so many other options of people and worldviews and ideas to follow, political systems to follow, political beliefs to follow. There's so many options. How are we to know that Jesus is the right person to follow. It's the same thing here that the disciples get. Jesus would say to us as well, hey, the greatest heroes that you have, the ones that you want to lead forward, lead, uh, follow forward into battle, he's better than that. He is the, he, he's the greatest leader there is. He's the one who can be followed into battle because he is the right person to follow. He's the fulfillment of everything that God wants to do in the world. <laughs> Jesus is the right person to follow. And man, have we seen this in our transition as a church? Have we not? Have we not had to kind of confront in ourselves some of the ways in which we, uh, we don't think of Jesus as the one that we're following? A lot of us, and this is a good thing, friends, a lot of us have had to re-up on the commitment to follow Jesus forward with Icon, regardless of who is leading this whole thing. Because Jesus ultimately is the right person to follow. Jesus verifies for the disciples and verifies for us that he's the right person to follow. Not only that, not only does Jesus verify that he's the right person to follow, he also gives them a sense of his beauty. He gives them a sense of his value, that he's the right person to follow, so, or that he's worth following. So Jesus doesn't just verify it. You know, knowing that Jesus is the right person to follow forward kind of gets us up on our feet. But the beauty of Jesus is what compels us forward. And so Jesus here in the transfiguration gives a display of his beauty and glory. And he shows that his beauty and his glory is irreplaceable. It is incomparable. Look at the text. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Can't be replicated, which means it, it, it can't be replaced. The, the beauty that Jesus is broadcasting here is irreplaceable. It's irreplaceable. It's not just that Jesus is showing off here. It's not just a weird scene where light comes out of the body of Jesus. What is trying to be shown here is the value of Jesus. Anytime you, you look in the scriptures and you see the idea of light or, or shining or brightness, it should perk up your ears that something is meant to, something is being shown as beautiful here. And specifically in this text, it shows that Jesus' beauty is unlike anything anything else in the world. It's irreplaceable. 
No one on, it's, it's incomparable. It's, it can't be replicated. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. <laughs> no one else on earth could do this. And it's incomparable. It's a beauty that's incomparable. Isn't that why the Father speaks from the cloud in reaction to Peter's comment? Peter sets Jesus on the same level as his greatest heroes, Moses and Elijah. He just kind of says, hey, Jesus, whoa, this is, it's really good that we're here. Why don't we go ahead and set up, a, set up a tent for Moses and Elijah and you? He sets them kind of all on the same level, and the, the Father rebukes him for it. Do not put my son on the same level as these two. He is incomparable in his worth and glory and value. Indeed, the, the bright light exuding from Jesus is a physical manifestation of the beauty and glory that he had with the Father for eternity past. Jesus has always possessed this beauty and glory. This radiance, as Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. Radiance, meaning that, that Jesus is the, the luminosity of the glory of God the Father. He is the Son who is the exact imprint of the Father. And as the imprint of God the Father, He radiates forth all that makes God good and beautiful. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God's love. The love that's unwavering, the love that's unending, the love so strong that it nearly demands our pardon to be accomplished. The love that looks at the woman caught in adultery and says, does no one else condemn you? Neither do I. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God's power. The power that speaks a word into a raging storm and peace ensues. The power that steps onto the scene and demons plead not to be destroyed. The power that will slay our great enemy simply by the breath of his mouth, as Paul says. Jesus is the radiance of the righteousness of God. The righteousness that refuses to overlook one iota of the law. The righteousness that refuses to declare a ceasefire with sin. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God's faithfulness. The faithfulness that sticks with 12 foolish disciples for years. The faithfulness that keeps within his hand all that call upon him for salvation. The faithfulness that leaves no promise unfulfilled. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God's mercy. The mercy that restores the guilty to innocence. The mercy that will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering flax. He's the glory, he's the radiance of God's constancy. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's the glory of God's wisdom. The wisdom that disarms every pointed question of the Pharisees. The wisdom that knows just what to say, just what to do in every ambiguous situation. He's the radiance of God's purity. The purity that is completely void of any misplaced desire or disordered love. Jesus is the radiance of God's compassion, the compassion that looks at the leper, this man who had forgot the sensation of human touch and does not just heal him, but restores him to dignity through touch. 
Jesus is the glory of God on display. His beauty is the glory, the beauty of God is put on display through Jesus. It's incomparable. It's irreplaceable. It cannot be replicated. This great light that Jesus is showing forth, showing that he's the radiance of the glory of God, is meant to show the disciples that Jesus is worth following forward. He's worth it. No matter what you have to give up, no matter how painful it is, this scene of the transfiguration offers to you, invites you into a greater beauty moving forward. Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God. And in response to this beauty, this glory, we need to fix our attention on Him. We need to fix our attention on Him to see this great beauty. And this will be especially hard in our age of, of, of cheap spectacle. Spectacles of the next, ne- the next Netflix series, the spectacles of this influencer, of seemingly endless bite-sized tweets, spectacles of political disaster or this BuzzFeed article or this violent tragedy. We are shouted at on a day-by-day vo- basis with small voices of, read this, you might like this, those who bought this also bought this. And if we're not careful, this barrage of what's coming at us can distract us away, really numb us to the beauty of Jesus. So we must give our attention to this great beauty. If we don't give our attention to it, we will never see it. And I'm not just talking about glances. Glances never warm the heart. It is the long, prolonged stare, the attended to stare at the beauty of Jesus that will warm your heart. Listen to, listen to how Tony Rinke in his book, Competing Spectacles, talks about this. This idea of attention to Jesus. Attention is the skill of withdrawing from everything to focus on some things. And it is the opposite of the dizziness of the scatterbrained spectacle seeker who cannot attend to anything. Thus, attention determines how we perceive the world around us. Millions of items of the outward order are present to our senses, which never properly enter into our experience. Why is that? He's saying there's, there's so many things that are around you right now that are begging your senses, are, are enticing your senses to notice them, but you don't. Why is that? Well, because they have no interest for you. Your experience is what you agree to attend to. Only those items which you notice shape your mind. That you have selective interest. Experience uh, is utter chaos outside of that. And so what Tony Rinke is trying to say here is that what you give your attention to is ultimately what's going to shape your mind and heart. And that should be obvious, but... It needs to be said that your life is the sum of what you attend to. Your life, your experience, even in the Christian life, is the sum of whatever you're focusing on, of whatever you're attending to. And so if you're not seeing the beauty of Jesus, and of course there are seasons where we are attending to the beauty of Jesus but not yet seeing it, 
But for many of us, if our hearts feel dull, if our hearts feel cold, I would bet it's because we are attending to all these other competing spectacles that are trying to grab our attention away from the beauty of Jesus. And if we're going to see that Jesus is worth following, like the disciples saw here, we're going to have to attend to it. We're going to have to give our attention to this great beauty. Friends, what are, what are you focused on in life right now? What is it that has grabbed your attention? Is it what's going on politically? Is it some new political tragedy as tragic as it is? Is it some cause even? What is competing with you attending and focusing in on the beauty of Jesus right now? I would tell you, Jesus says here, put it aside. As Paul says in Philippians, account it as rubbish in comparison with the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ. To see this great beauty. None of us attend to Jesus as we should. None of us attend to Jesus' beauty as we should, but there are, we, we need to have moments of repentance where we say, Jesus, your, your beauty is incomparable. Your beauty is irreplaceable. It cannot be replicated, and no matter what else I give myself to, nothing else is like you, Jesus. And these moments of repentance help us zero our attention back in on him. Some of us need to do that today. And one of the ways just to close, that I think would be helpful for us to zero in on the beauty of Jesus is something the Christian life is all about, which is the cross. You see, the, the transfiguration is not just the compelling nature that's meant to push us forward on the cross-bearing way. As we pick up our cross, the transfiguration does push us forward, absolutely, with its verification and valuation. But also, remember, we're following Jesus forward. That Jesus is leading this whole thing to his own crucifixion. And it's his crucifixion that kind of as a magnetic force draws us closer into the sacrificial life. Because of the beauty that we see in the cross. In fact, the beauty of the cross is kind of the same of what we see here in the transfiguration. Only flipped on its head. The transfiguration and what happens is, is pushing us forward, but the cross of Jesus is drawing us forward. And it's done with the same beauty. And you can even see that in the scene that goes on. I wonder if you noticed what, what would happen if you took the transfiguration, the beauty of what's going on here, the scene, and flipped it on its head. So the transfiguration, Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. Two men appeared with him. Moses and Elijah, the quintessential of the godly. And as Peter was saying that he should, that he should build a tent, a, a, a bright cloud comes over them. And from that cloud, the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, listen to him. What happened is the beauty of that, what happens if we turn that on its head? Kind of flip it upside down. Maybe it would look a lot like the cross. That Jesus was defigured before their eyes. Two men appeared with him. Two pagan thieves, the quintessential of the godly, ungodly. And then a dark cloud overhangs the scene and from the cloud comes silence. 
You see, these, these, it's, they match perfectly, and they match perfectly in order to show us that in the in-between of us carrying our cross, it's beauty that's pushing us forward, and it's the beauty of the cross that's drawing us forward. And so, just for application sense, what is Jesus calling you to lay aside right now? What in your life have you picked up, whether it's sin or even, even something that's good, that even a good thing that you've made an ultimate thing? And what is Jesus calling you on your route to him, on, on following him in the cross-bearing way? What is he telling you to lay aside? And how are you reacting to that? Are you disillusioned? Are you, are you feeling like this is such a core piece of who I am? I can't give this up. And if that's you, do you, do you see that Jesus is trying to show here that he's the right person to follow and that he's worth following no matter what you have to give up. He's worth following. The beauty of the transfiguration pushing you forward, the beauty of the crucifixion of Jesus drawing you forward is meant to compel you in the Christian life, to energize you to pick up your own cross and die because it's worth it. Friends, I, I hope that the transfiguration is not just a blip for you. You don't see it as just a distraction in the Gospels, but you would see it as, as, as bread on this way in the Christian life, as energy, as necessary, because it shows us the beauty of Jesus. Would you attend to him? Would you focus on him? Would you see he's the right person to follow among all the other options? He's the right one. He's the greatest fulfillment of all of our heroes. And his beauty is incomparable. He's worth following forward. Would you attend to that this week? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this scene that, that compels us forward, God. That pushes us forward in life when we feel, in the Christian life, when we feel like we can't go any further. When we feel like all that we thought you were when we're disillusioned with what you're calling us to, when it feels too intimidating, it feels too painful, I thank you that you are kind enough to give us this scene in the gospel that can push us forward, God. And I pray that it would do just that. God, that your spirit would help us to see that Jesus is the greatest fulfillment of all of our heroes, and he is worth following forward. He's worth giving up whatever is necessary Whatever is holding us back, whatever is taking our attention away, those things are worth leaving behind because of the beauty of Jesus. God, would you help us believe that by your Spirit? Would you give us grace to do that, God? And let us follow you forward no matter what you're calling us to. Give us the strength for that. Give us the faith for that. In Jesus' name, amen.